A warm welcome to this series of podcasts on how new medicines are regulated and in particular how different catastrophes have helped shape regulatory practice. I use medicines, drugs, pharmaceuticals and therapeutics interchangeably, basically to mean products administered to humans or animals to treat or prevent disease. This is not a podcast on specific illnesses, nor do I offer medical advice. My focus is on the regulations governing their discovery, development and eventual release to the market. The podcast starts today with a premise, which is that for highly regulated industries, sectors like finance, aviation, healthcare, etc., their regulatory structure, the controls governing how these industries operate, has emerged out of catastrophes. So the way regulation of the pharmaceutical industry has emerged and developed over the years, this has almost always been as a result of disasters and calamities. Of course, the pharmaceutical industry has a unique identity to itself, the manner in which it operates and is regulated compared to, say, the financial industry. And it is also different in the way it is exceptionally successful at what it does. I am referring to how it has helped provide numerous therapies that relieve human suffering. Of course, cynics will point to examples of the profit motives, as well as misconduct by some companies, but the fact of the matter remains that the modern pharmaceutical industry has been overall a force for good. But back to the pharmaceutical industry. Its regulatory structure today, my supposition that this has been shaped by catastrophes, moments of calamity, each of which producing remarkably undesirable outcomes that fundamentally shaped the industry's future direction and gave us, in my view, the regulatory landscape that's at play today. This is the story of this podcast series. I would like to ask you to take a short moment in your head to think about what my catastrophes could be. My suspicion is that the vast majority of you will get one, two or maybe even three. These are very obvious. The fourth one is a little bit trickier and the fifth one will be a stretch, so well done if you manage to get all five of them. Sorry to say, there is not a prize as such, just the satisfaction of knowing. So we start by charting the progress of the medical sciences over the years. For thousands of years, medical products have been controlled and regulated in some form. In the Middle Ages, control and regulation focused on product quality and composition, which was accomplished by reference to authorised lists, the precursors to today's official pharmacopoeias. These pharmacopoeias were local rules applicable to cities or provinces. Therapeutic products consisted mainly of herbal and occasionally animal extracts. During the 19th century, many national pharmacopoeias would eventually replace local ones. It helps, if we can start by touching on, in very broad terms, the antecedents and origins of the modern pharmaceutical industry, the form in which we know it today. The current structure, of course, merely represents a snapshot of a long-running movie. In order that we can understand the importance of the different elements of this movie, we would do well to understand the importance of the different elements, milestones if you like, that can be recognised in the different frames. So let's start with a very selective account of the important events that have helped shape the industry. We will focus on the last 200 years or even the last 150 years, despite the fact that medicinal products have existed since the birth of civilization. So let's go straight to the middle of the 19th century. Why only this recent, despite the remarkable advances in medicine, and there are many that we can name, had made up to that point in time? Well, 
because up to that point, the practice of medicine, and therefore the therapeutics used, were dominated not by hard science, but by theistic and frankly bogus constructs of health and disease. Only in the mid-19th century, and some would even argue that it was 50 years later, at the start of the 20th century, that chemistry and biology are advanced sufficiently enough to be applied to the discovery of new medicines, and it is for this reason that we start in the middle of the 19th century. We can actually begin to see this play out. In 1864 in England, in the then official pharmacopoeia, the British pharmacopoeia, we start to have a good idea of the state of therapeutics. There are listed over 300 preparations. Of these, around 180 consist of plant-derived preparations, of which 9 are purified substances. 100 of these are chemicals in origin, typically inorganic substances such as iodine, ferrous sulfate and even mercury for good measure. There are also synthetic chemicals such as chloroform and diethyl ether. So by this time we are able to see a change, a transition from prehistory to a modern period. Synthetic organic chemistry is advancing well enough to be able to create completely new substances and a nascent chemical industry is developing across Europe and America. Some of these chemicals are even being adopted as therapeutic substances. At the same time, there is similar progress within the biological sciences. The germ theory of disease has now been proposed, and scientists of the day are beginning to think not in terms of four humours, but in terms of cells which can be affected by chemical substances. Perhaps one of the most defining milestones during this early period is the establishment of the first pharmacological institutes across Europe, in Estonia and in Strasbourg, that raised standards in experimentation and new insights to therapeutics. I should also make mention of Paul Ehrlich's contribution, with some referring to him as the father of chemotherapy. Born in 1854 and trained in pathology, Ehrlich developed interest in using synthetic chemicals for histological staining. He would later go on to develop the idea of specific binding of molecules to specific cellular sites, what we would today identify as receptor and targets. For his contributions, Ehrlich won the 1908 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. At the same time, strides in the chemical industry and the biological sciences were being made. The apothecaries trade was booming. Remember that this is a period when the Industrial Revolution in Western Europe is happening and people's life expectations are changing. And despite the absence of clear, demonstrable efficacy of the vast majority of therapeutic substances during this period, physicians feel obliged to issue prescriptions to meet their patients' needs. And within communities across the land, apothecaries have emerged to fill these prescriptions. It is a time of great vibrancy. And while the vast majority of apothecaries are focused on satisfying local demand, a few enterprising ones sense opportunities in isolating the active principles in plant extracts and marketing these on a large scale. The first local apothecary of this kind, the first one to move into large-scale synthesis, was the firm Merck in Darmstadt, which has been founded in 1668. This development was helped greatly by advances in chemistry, most notably purification of natural products. And soon, other companies in Germany and Switzerland follow Merck's lead, firms like Bayer, Boehringer and Schering in Europe, and Park Davis and Eli Lilly in the United States, to name but a few. So really, 
It is from around 1870 onwards with the development of the chemical industry in which synthetic methods are being used as a source of new substances that we can begin to see from glancing at various pharmacopoeias of that time the predominance of synthetic substances. Indeed, as several chemical companies saw the potential usefulness of chemicals as medicines, a number quickly moved into the area that was being occupied by apothecaries. The effect of this diversification was the sprouting of companies that were applying their chemical knowledge to the production of therapeutic substances. Many of these founder companies still remain in the business today. Thus, the beginnings of the modern pharmaceutical industry can be dated to that period between 1850 and 1880, its origins being in enterprising high street apothecaries on one hand and the chemical industry on the other. The transition of this new industry into a source of therapeutic substances was made possible by advances in pharmacology, in particular the understanding of how disease and drug substances could affect the functioning of cells and organisms as a whole. Even then, several decades had to pass before chemical inventions would start to make a major impact on the treatment of illness. So, at the turn of the 20th century, various synthetic drugs are being made and tested, including antipyretics and several central nervous system depressants. Chemical tinkering on chloroform would produce chloral hydrate, the first non-volatile central nervous depressant. Other discoveries were made, leading to the introduction of barbiturates in 1903. At around the same time, procaine was synthesised and adopted as the first local anaesthetic. From then on, chemistry was the main driver for drug discovery and it remained the dominant force until the very last quarter of the 20th century that we see the emergence of molecular biology as a new technology platform for drug discovery. What about regulations and controls? When and where do these emerge? I should say that these controls and regulations have existed for as long as medicines have been in use. As a matter of fact, From many historical records, in ancient Greece and Egypt, there existed laws related to control of drug quality, composition and purity. The fact that charlatans and quack products existed, despite these regulations, attests to their limitations. The first substantive regulation to appear can be traced back to 1540, when during the reign of Henry VIII, when a law is introduced in England to control manufacture of medicines. Aptly named as the Apothecaries Wares Drugs and Stuffs Act, it is one of the earliest British statutes that establishes inspectors who were charged with supervising the manufacture of medicines in England, a form of pharmaceutical inspection and auditing scheme. Of course, pharmacopoeias representing the official books of drug quality have always been in existence, some dating back to earlier periods. But while these official texts required apothecaries to prepare products consistently and in accordance with stipulated formulas, the first pharmacopoeia as we know it today starts to appear in the 16th century. Pharmacopoeias, such as the Spanish Pharmacopoeia of 1581 and the London Pharmacopoeia of 1618, these are the first ones to include manufacturing standards. Encouraging as these innovations were, it would take nearly another 200 years to the middle of the 19th century, if we're to be precise, that modern medicines, regulations begins to emerge. This is a period of great progress, which I elaborated upon earlier in experimental pharmacology and synthetic chemistry. People have made real progress in the understanding of disease, and as well, there is a number of reasonably good drug substances. 
This is the period there is an explosion in the number of prefabricated remedies, especially in Britain and the United States of America, which are being promoted directly to the public to treat all manner of illnesses. The term patent medicine has become synonymous with many of these remedies. By all accounts, patent remedies were quack medicines. In the absence of meaningful regulations, patent medicines often contained dangerous levels of alcohol, opium and other narcotics, potentially addictive and deadly ingredients that were not revealed to the public. Unscrupulous manufacturers greatly exaggerated the curative powers of their remedies. This is our first catastrophe, the catastrophe of patent medicines, which I will return to in a latter episode. Across the English-speaking world, a pushback against patent medicines began to emerge, with the medical establishment and journalists raising concerns about the over-commodification of health and the absence of any controls on claims. In the United States of America, Congress enacted the U.S. Pure Food and Drugs Act in 1906, which now required companies to declare contents of their products for product purity to comply with labelled information and prohibited misleading statements on effectiveness. These regulations, in the USA or elsewhere, were, however, not sufficient to prevent the sale of defective products or malpractices, leading to the other catastrophes. In 1937, in the USA, the S.E. Massengill Company introduced the elixir sulfonilamide, which consisted of sulfonilamide dissolved in diethylene glycol, resulting in the death of 71 adults and 34 children. The elixir sulfonilamide had been tested only for flavour, appearance and fragrance, but not for safety. Public outrage galvanised support for legislation to strengthen the public control of drugs, leading to the United States' 1938 Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. This act introduced new controls. Sales of new drugs was prohibited unless they were shown to be safe for use under the conditions of use prescribed on their labels. The act also explicitly required the labelling of drug products with adequate directions for use. In addition, the burden of proof of harm of new drugs was laid on the Federal Food and Drug Agency, the FDA, and companies had to investigate safety of products and report to the FDA. The 1938 Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act still remains to this day the United States' legal foundation for the public control of drugs and devices intended for use in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment or prevention of disease in humans or animals and a model for similar legislation in many other countries. The elixir sulfonilamide disaster is our second catastrophe and it is one we shall examine fully in a subsequent podcast. Now, it is really impossible today to comprehend the sheer meanness that's captured by the third catastrophe, which is unethical human experimentation in the 20th century. Well, to the common person on the street, the story of medical advances is a happy one. An innovation is successfully introduced to a grateful public who willingly participate in its development. So, to our Western sensibilities, nurtured as we are on notions of free will and respect for the individual rights, the idea that unethical clinical practices can occur in modern Europe or the US 
sound like a work of fiction. Yet, and sadly, the 20th century is littered with multiple examples of unethical human clinical trials, not least the wartime atrocities by Nazi doctors and Imperial Japanese Army, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, the brutal experiments on indigenous populations in Australia and Canada, as well as numerous cases of experimentation on those who are incarcerated. Following these notorious cases, many influential codes of medical ethics and regulations have been introduced, both in the United States and internationally, notably the Nuremberg Code 1947, the Belmont Report 1979, the US Common Rule 1991 and the Declaration of Helsinki 2000, and more recently, Good Clinical Practice. The wide adoption of these guidelines has shaped and continues to shape the manner in which clinical research is conducted to the benefit of both trial participants as well as the quality of the resulting data. I will return to the catastrophe of unethical human experimentation in a future episode. Let's now fast forward to the late 1950s and early 1960s. The pattern of drug discovery is in the firm grip of synthetic chemistry and biological science is rather advanced. Many successes are being realised, including the introduction of benzodiazepines, several anti-epileptic drugs and antidepressants too. At the same time, many antibiotics have been discovered and commercially launched. It is a highly vibrant time, everything is going well and the industry is experiencing a great high. You can begin to see how our fourth catastrophe, the thalidomide disaster of 1961, comes about. Thalidomide had been launched across Europe in the late 1950s as a non-toxic treatment for a variety of conditions, including colds, anxiety, infections and depression, either alone or in combination with other compounds, such as analgesics and sedatives. At that time, thalidomide was considered harmless. It had been tested in animals, but there was no toxicity information in humans. Unfortunately, Europe, unlike the US, was lagging behind when it came to drug regulation. There was little control over the way medicines were manufactured and marketed. In the few short years that thalidomide was sold, over 10,000 babies worldwide were affected, with around half dying within months of being born. Those that survived live with the effects of this drug. But while the United States escaped thalidomide, it experienced its own disasters. One to note happened in April 1955, when more than 200,000 children received a defective polio vaccine. Within days, there were reports of paralysis, and within a month, the first mass vaccination programme against polio had to be abandoned. Subsequent investigations revealed that the vaccine, manufactured by Cutter Laboratories, had caused 40,000 cases of polio, resulted in 200 children with varying degrees of paralysis and 10 dead. There was another blow, this time in Japan. From 1959 up to 1971, the so-called SMON, subacute myelo-optical neuropath disaster happened, which was blamed on the frequent use of an intestinal antiseptic. Cleoquinol. This product had been on sale in Japan for a long, long time without restrictions under the misguided assumption that it was not absorbed systemically. It was to be found subsequently that repeated use of cleoquinol was associated with serious adverse effects, including blindness. These tragedies, whether the thalidomide disaster, the Cutter incident, or the SMON, had far reaching legacies on governmental regulatory controls of pharmaceutical products. 
they forced regulatory agencies to require evidence of efficacy as well as safety as a precondition for registration. Formal approval was required for patients to be included in clinical trials for new drugs. In Europe, the UK Medicines Act of 1968 made safety assessment of new products mandatory and in Japan, the Pharmaceutical Affairs Law is also enacted and revised to improve drug quality, safety and efficacy assessment. By 1970, laws are in place. These are all aimed at improving the reporting and evaluating of the risks and benefits of drugs and vaccines as a result of these disasters. So far, I have charted the major milestones in the evolution of the modern pharmaceutical industry, the different ideas and technologies and how they have played out up to the 1970s. The main threads, in summary, are... Number one, the role of clinical medicine right up to the 20th century, by far the oldest forebearer to our story, which relied mainly on herbal and animal extracts as remedies. Number two, pharmacy, which grew out of the apothecary trade in the 17th century and set itself up to meet demands for remedies, herbal or otherwise. Number three, synthetic chemistry, which began in the middle of the 19th century and evolved into medicinal chemistry. And finally, number four, pharmacology, which also begun towards the latter part of the 19th century and opened our understanding about chemical substances and physiological function. I also mentioned that the pharmaceutical industry began to develop into an industry in its own right around the start of the 20th century. For the next 70 years, it was a highly productive industry and this period witnessed the introduction of many useful medicines, some of them truly novel. This period also corresponded with the introduction of more stringent regulatory controls across the world, reaching a happy medium or equilibrium between innovation and regulatory restraint. The last 40 years have been somewhat a turbulent period for the pharmaceutical industry, a major consequence of which has been a structural change in the organisation of research, manufacturing and marketing of products. What has emerged over the last 40 years is a clearer division of responsibilities, with governments and health authorities being responsible for protecting public health and safety and pharmaceutical companies responsible for all aspects of drug products. Approval of a drug product has evolved into a social contract between regulators, who represent the public and consumers, and the pharmaceutical company. The terms of this contract are spelled out in the marketing application approval, condensed in the products prescribing information and marketing authorization. This brings me nicely to the last and final catastrophe. So now, who honestly got all five? Who got four? Three? Yeah, I know quite a few of you got three, which is great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have some bad news for you today because we are witnessing, right now, today as we speak, the fifth catastrophe. This is the catastrophic of the opioid crisis, a crisis that means today, every day, 128 people across the United States die after overdosing on opioids. The misuse of and addiction to opioids, including prescription pain relievers, heroin and synthetic opioids such as fentanyl represents a serious crisis with lasting impact on public health as well as social and economic welfare. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has estimated that the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the United States is a whopping $78.5 billion a year, including the cost of health care, lost productivity, addiction treatment and criminal justice involvement. The causes of this ongoing catastrophe are complicated. 
and we have got no time unfortunately today to go into it all, but a basic fact is that it represents sadly a failure on the part of the pharmaceutical industry to act ethically, physicians to question the claims of pharmaceutical marketers and governments to exercise regulatory oversight on the activities of the industry. It is a degradation of the social contract that I mentioned moments earlier. We can blame the particularities of the United States healthcare system and the healthcare system there has contributed to making the country particularly vulnerable but other countries are by no means immune. The main denominator, in my view, is the structure of the drug regulatory system in many countries which leaves them critically exposed to these problems. We will return to these catastrophes later on during another episode. So each time, through history, whenever the industry has been hit by a crisis, it has led to changes, changes that made it stronger and better. From the patent medicines crisis to the thalidomide crisis, the pain that has been experienced, history shows us there has been gain, a greater good, safer medicines and vaccines. I am not sure if we are able to make sense of the current crisis, a 21st century crisis, one that will probably have equally far-reaching consequences as those that have gone before it. What changes are needed for the industry to build on its earlier successes and emerge even stronger? Well, of course, we could not predict the future, but you probably all have opinions. So I suggest we reconvene in the next episodes and look at each of these crises to see what we can learn from each one of them and how we can shape the future. Thank you very much.